All right, everybody. How are you? I hope everybody had a good week. I apologize. I was uh, got tied up with everything yesterday. Couldn't get this done. Um, so I'm doing it on Saturday morning. Um, last couple, two or three Fridays have ended up being exceptionally busy days, and I don't think I got to do it till Friday night one time and Saturday morning the next. So, but I'll, I want to keep it on Friday because I think. It, I think given our investing style, I think it's better to recap the week than try it on a Monday to start the week because, you know, we're talking about what happened. We're not trying to predict the future here. So, and I, I don't think waiting until Monday to talk about last week's stuff when everyone's kind of geared up for the new week, I don't think that's a productive time. So I will still keep it on Fridays and try to do it. And if I can't do it on Fridays, I'll, I'll do it Saturday and I'll get it up there. And, if, you know, if some bizarre thing happens and I can't do it Friday or Saturday, I will leave a... Uh, something on the blog so that uh, everyone's aware of what's going on. So, um, so let's let's get to the questions. Why is discovery of Sweeney not open to public? Well, the Treasury has argued that um, the discovery requested some internal documents of deliberations about the conservatorship and the GSEs and the future of them and what to do and things like that. And they made the argument that disclosure, public disclosure of that. Um, could have a negative effect on markets, and it's it's a legit argument. You know, it's you know, it, agencies need to be able to have discussions and throw ideas around. And some of the ideas you throw around, you may may later discover were just ridiculous or outlandish or not possible, or whatever. Um, but if these deliberations are made public, right, then markets could be affected. The people could be thinking, "Oh my God, they're actually considering doing something like this." You know, the, the 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 housing market could be affected, the mortgage market could be affected, the GSC shareholders could be affected. So there could be a lot of negative consequences to the release of information uh, via discovery that's either incomplete or taken out of context or simply basically a comment made during a deliberation where they were throwing ideas around in a room about what to do um, that could be construed as a serious opinion of the Treasury Department or FHFA um, and what they want to eventually do with the GSEs. And that, that could negatively affect people. Now, at some point in time, these will come out. But it, while the trial is ongoing, it, it's, judges usually err on the side of caution in these cases just because, you know, the last thing Margaret Sweeney wants to do is, is disrupt people's lives in the public uh, because something comes out of disclosure that, again, is either taken out of context or just simply someone making an offhand comment on, you know, the GSEs, why don't, why don't we just put them in receivership and be done with this shit? Um, and people, oh my God, that's what they're going to do when the stocks tank. And, you know, it, would, it, would, it, it was a good decision. Um, what did you take of Bill Ackman's Q3 earnings call? Comments on Fannie and Freddie. He talked about upcoming Ford Catalyst capital rule by the end of 2019. Revised PSPA as early as um, first quarter twenty. A large secondary offering before Election Day, emergency from servership and real estate at NYSE. Do you agree with his estimated catalyst and time frame? What is your take on his argument that company may be more attractive to the common, may be more attractive than preferred? Do you think senior preferred will convert to common? So uh, the time frame, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I think we get the capital rule, the rise PSP, PSPA before the end of the year. That's a senior preferred stock agreement. Um, and the large secondary offering before Election Day, uh, I 100% agree with. They absolutely have to do it before Election Day. 
Um, and it has to be a large one. Um, <clears throat> because here's a scenario. Play this scenario out in your head. Um, they revised, they stopped the network sweep. They put out a capital rule and they do a capital raise of $10 billion. And they do it in June. Trump loses the election. New person comes in. Automatically, boom, Clever, you're out. Boom, Mnuchin, you're out. My guys are in. A year later, we have a recession. Housing prices drop. 10 12% for whatever reason. The GSEs do not have enough capital to absorb losses. Have to go to the government again. What happens to the GSEs? My opinion, they become government agencies. At that moment, Democrats will look there and say, they failed once. Now, whether you agree with this or not, this is going to be the narrative. They failed once. We put them in conservatorship. You tried to take them out. You tried to privatize them. They failed again. These need to be government agents 100%. They're put in receivership. They're just absorbed in the U.S. government. Shareholders, everyone's wiped out. <clears throat> the argument, this is the only way we can have a stable housing market and stable GSEs if we make them part of the U.S. government because they failed twice now. That will be the argument. So whatever capital raise is done before the election has to be big enough so when they run their stress test, if housing prices drop 10, 12, 15%, the GSEs have enough capital to absorb those losses. It has to be big enough. Whitney Tilson's, um, Whitney Tilson's, his is very similar to Bill's, um, has a, a letter going around that he wrote in September. And he suggested that they will do a $10 billion offering at $10 a share. So Fannie Mae will only have a billion more shares issued before it comes out of conservatorship. I completely disagree with that. I don't know who's going to buy into an IPO of a company at $10 a share when the shares are trading below three or around three. I think Dick Beauvais, his analysis is much more accurate. You do a public offering at $250 a share, a discount to the current price. Why would someone buy an IPO 250% higher than the current stock price? No, no one's the answer. So if you want to raise just $10 billion, that's $4 billion more shares at two fifty dollars a share. So I think the math on a lot of the potential outcomes for share prices... is off. <clears throat> I don't think $10 billion is a sufficient capital buffer to raise for the GSEs before the election to ensure that if something goes wrong on the other end, they're not just wiped out. I think you need to raise $20 billion, $30 billion. So that even if Mnuchin and Calabria are forced to leave office and we go into a recession, which eventually we will, the GSCs aren't just eliminated because they have to go back to the government again. 
and both being free market guys, the thought of <clears throat> having the largest financial institutions in the world by asset sites fail twice. Again, that's what this will be the narrative. They, that thought has to terrify them. So they have to make sure that the, before the election, there's as much capital in those things as possible to eliminate that scenario. I mean, it, we don't know who's going to win. You can, if, if last year proved anything to anybody, is that presidential election polls are worthless. I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. They are worthless. You know, there's, there's, I've seen studies done on polling all the time. You can do a random poll and get the exact, exact outcome you want. If, if you're, if you're, if you're, demo, if you're a pollster and you're democratically oriented, call a thousand addresses randomly in uptown Manhattan. Who's going to win the election? Who do you think the answer is going to be? It's going to be a Democrat. If you're Republican, pick any county in Florida that's voted Republican for the last 20 years straight. Call a thousand homes. Who's going to win? You know the answer is going to be. It is very easy to poll for the exact information you want to get. We know who votes where. We, we know what counties, what towns, what cities, what people vote certain ways. We know this information. We have 200 years of history about it. So if you're polling in politics, you want to get an outcome, you know where to call your quote-unquote random numbers to get the outcome you want. And Reagan was behind Mondale in the polls almost by, almost by double digits in the summer before the election. Ended up with one of the biggest landslides in history. And he was behind in the polls. So don't, don't do anything with this investment based on what you think the polls are going to be next year. And I think those guys in office are smart enough to know that, you know, we may not be here. And we need to do what we need to do to ensure that whatever groundwork we lay gets done. We need to get them out of conservatorship, get them under consent decree, and we need to have the capital levels before the election high enough so that if we're not in office, nothing goes wrong. And also, <clears throat> neither analysis that I've seen really deals with the outstanding litigation. And I'm sorry, but you're not going to raise a dime with lawsuits out there in which you could conceivably have to return tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars to shareholders. You're not going to raise a dime. So how can you how can you put together a estimate of value for common stock when you a have no idea of the outcome of litigation of senior of the preferred stock that's above it and the on the capital and the capital structure and b you have no idea of the plans coming out, coming out and you have no idea of the dilution and I don't I don't understand how you get to ten dollars a share for an IPO when the stock's at three fifty. I just did. Who who would buy that? I I wouldn't. 
So I think the dilution in some of those scenarios is going to be a little much larger than expected. Now, I do think long-term, the common has plenty of upside. But I think it also has plenty of risk right now. I'm in the preferreds because I think the preferreds are probably going to be a double from their current levels. The common might be, could be a double, could be a triple. I don't know. But the common could also get cut in half 50-60%. And I can see either sides of the argument for either a 200% upside in the common or 70% downside in the common. I can see either scenario. And either scenario is logical based on the assumptions that you make. Because we don't know what's happening. We don't know the outcome. So it is all guesswork right now. I think there's a lot less guesswork in the preferred, which is why I'm there. That's that's a simple answer. I don't think the senior preferred, the question asks, uh, do you think the senior preferred would be very common? I don't think so. I think so eventually. They, they ha- they'll have to sell it. Well, no, the senior preferred stock is is not going to be converted to common. The junior preferred, which is what we own, I think will. The government has 79.9% of the common. You know, The argument is that the government's not going to dilute common shareholders because they own 80% of the stock. Well, they diluted Bank of America. They diluted Citigroup. They diluted Goldman Sachs. They diluted the hell out of AIG. <clears throat> and they had warrants for 80% of AIG stock. And AIG got crushed. So that argument, based on past history, that argument to me doesn't hold up either. The government's not going to play favorites with common shareholders because it's aligned with them versus preferred shareholders because they're not. Because why? There's another round of lawsuits. There was a a nice exchange. So before the Lamb, this is kind of a segue, but before the Lambeth Court this week, you know, Treasury is trying to be done with discovery, doesn't want to produce any more documents, needs more time, blah, 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 blah. And uh, Royce Lambeth, who, who started this whole mess, really, um, by ruling against shareholders. It was the first court to rule against shareholders. It was appealed, and it was remanded back to him. Um, basically, the appeals court said, you know, you didn't do a good job. Um Royce Lambeth's history is that when cases are remanded back to him, they tend to go the other way, which is good for plaintiffs. But Treasury is trying to stall, and and Lambeth had an opinion this week, and he basically said, to be frank, Treasury's memorandum of of points and authorities in opposition to plaintiff's motion to compel third-party discovery leaves the court with more questions than answers. Treasury also has the resources to complete the request of production, and the court will not entertain the preposterous notion that an agency's largest treasury lacks the manpower to complete this request. <laughs> that is beautiful. I mean, that, <clears throat> that was just a judicial bitch slap. That's what that was. You know? Lambert basically said to them, shut up, get it done, and the fact that you're asking not to do it, not to complete it, really makes me wonder what the hell you're doing. I mean, that those two sentences... He's pissed at Treasury. He wants Fannie and Freddie off his plate. No judge likes likes having stuff sent back to them. 
And then when it's sent back to you and one party's dicking around, getting the information, you can just get rid of it once and for all. I mean, I'm sorry, but judges are human beings and he's pissed. So that's a very good development before us in his court. He, he, he's done. So, um, and he, you know, while, while Sweeney has been painfully patient, uh, he doesn't seem to be taking that same tact. So I think that's a good thing. That's a good thing for us. Um, why does CHK issue going concern notice in 10Q on November 5th? Should it issue this right away when it acquired White Horse back in February 1, 2019? When and under what condition will it rectify this daunting notice? Do you think this is not a good time to buy more CHK? So <clears throat> it's not necessarily a daunting notice. There's roughly $2,000 to $2,500 $2, of these a year put out on publicly traded companies. I actually researched this. Um, you know, last year, 30 public companies went under. So that it, it's, it's not a, a death sentence as people think it is, okay? Now, if you remember correctly, we bought American Capital way back uh, for two bucks a share, did really, really well with it, four or five hundred percent profits. Um, and they had a going concern notice on there too. And these two situations are very similar. You know, Chesapeake got this notice because they may, not because they have, because they may violate uh, some debt covenants within the next year. So, you know, this stuff is automatically triggered by auditors. That, that by law, you have to, if, if these events might happen, you have to tell people. It's, it's all disclosure. It's mandated. It's not like they're, you know, telling something like that. They could rectify it various ways. If oil prices go up, they'll bring in more cash flow and um, rectifies it. If they sell some assets, pay off some more debt, it rectifies it. Um, if uh, they keep cutting costs and you know making other improvements in well drilling, it rectifies it. So they don't have to do anything really other than what they're doing to rectify it. If, and this is an if, if... They violate the covenants. Now, what can be done? They could go to the bank and ask for a waiver of those co that covenant. And nine times out of ten, given the progress they've made, banks will issue the waiver. But the banks get paid to do it. They'll say, yeah, we'll issue it, you know, a $10 million fee, and we'll raise the interest on it 1.25%. So we're going to get more interest on it and pay your fee and we'll waive the covenant. That's why Chesapeake hasn't gone to the bank to rectify it. They're going to wait until they actually violate it, if they do, to go to the bank and get the waiver. Because why pay for something now and pay more interest on something now that you feel you can rectify on your own with just the progress you're making in your business? Why pay for it? But so the stock price goes up real quick. But it's actually a negative if you pay for it. Because now you're paying money for something. Now you're paying a high interest on something that you really don't need. So your stock price goes up. But now you've actually hurt the company you're operating. If you can do it organically and not violate the covenant, then that going concern notice goes away and the stock price goes up. And you haven't had to you know, pay for that privilege. So managers doing the right thing. You know, and, you know, am I going to buy more? I have a lot. I'm not going to buy any more. You know, but the CEO and the chairman stepped in and bought 300,000 shares that day. 
You know, they, they bought shares under a buck. A whole lot of them. So, you know, they have a vote of confidence about it. Should they have no, issued it back then? No. You, 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 this thing, this stuff is all mandated by numbers. So, no, they shouldn't have issued it back then. You don't issue it until your auditor says you might be violation of those covenants. <clears throat> back in January, and this is all, you know, the lending lines for these companies are all set annually. And back in February, there was no fear it might be set lower. You know, because you don't know. You, you don't know. You don't know in February how many how many asset sales you're going to have. You don't know results for the rest of the year. So at that point in time, there was no concern that they might violate it. Now there's this concern that they may in the next year. So now they have to issue it. So um, the growth of IIPR is amazing. And we were told that the recent weakness of IIPR was due to the weakness of the industry sector. Why then <clears throat> is there weakness of the industry? Do you see a bottom? When do you think the whole industry will take off again? So, so IIPR, so let's go back, cannabis. Um, most publicly traded cannabis companies are roll-ups. And this is, we've seen this many times in history. You know, Canopy Growth, Tilray, they can't get a license to open a dispensary or sell into Massachusetts. All those licenses are going to local people. No big out-of-state corporation is going to get a license to do anything in Massachusetts. And most states are set up the same way. So then how do they get into Massachusetts? They have to buy their way in. And you have very few operators. You have a lot of money in these cannabis companies. So they're paying outrageous premiums to buy into these things. And that negatively hurts results. Eventually, it'll be fine. But in the short term, what happens is your revenues rocket... But your price, your your costs kind of outpace it. And that's what you see in the stock prices. And let's be honest, you know, it was a bubble two or three years ago in cannabis. You know, Tilray at $300, you know, selling for 300 times revenues. I mean, that was, it was a bubble. The bubble popped and it's come down. How is, well, why is the IIPR involved in that? Well, for good and for bad, IIPR is also in these indexes. Any cannabis index fund. IPR is evolved. IPR is a pot REIT. So they're rightly or wrongly, however you want to put it, associated with cannabis. So when these index funds sell off, these mutual funds, probably as mutual funds now that are in cannabis sell off, everything in them sells off. And IPR is part of that. It's got taken down as part of that. You can, you can look at IPR stock price. <clears throat> So it just started falling, and it coincides with these all these other stocks falling. Has a bottom? Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I think it's about fourteen percent since earnings, give or take. Um, you know, at some point, people are going to start to look at the company's a forward yield of. Four point six percent. I mean, what you know? So look at the dividend alone. If if dividends growing twenty five percent quarter over quarter, which is stunning, year over year, it grew one hundred and twenty three percent, which is staggering, right? So if we take that growth, 
let's cut it in half for next year. Okay, let's say it only grows 50% next year. Still amazing, but half what they're doing now, which I don't think is a realistic scenario given what they've done this year with investments. These places aren't paying rent yet. So next year's um, dividend growth should match this year's, but let's go back 50% and play conservative. I mean, they have 41 properties now, up from eight we bought a year ago in August. And they're still acquiring more. And now they're getting into the dispensary business, which is solid, rock-solid cash flows in a dispensary right now. An abject moron could run a dispensary and make millions right now. Especially in Massachusetts. It's just, I mean, I'll go over the economics in a minute. So, But... Um, if we assume that 50% drop, we're going to be making almost 10% on our purchase price. 10% on our purchase price and a dividend that's growing 100% year over year if we assume it drops to 50% next year. And I don't think that's a likely scenario. Now people say, oh, the SAFE Act, the Banking Act, and competition, competition, competition. The SAFE Banking Act is about one thing and one thing only. Credit cards. If you walk into a dispensary right now, you either pay eight, you either pay with cash or you pay with a debit card, and the debit card is structured as an ATM withdrawal. It's not even a normal debit card transaction. The government, the federal government, and state governments are well aware they are losing hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue because it still is a cash business. So the Safe Banking Act isn't about making loans, isn't about opening up a REIT to compete. It's about credit cards. It's about giving credit card processors safety in processing credit card transactions at cannabis distributors. That's all it's about. Bank of America, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, all these guys are not going to jump into cannabis lending until it's federally legalized. And who knows when that's going to be. There might be some small state credit unions that decide to lend to um, growers or lend to people to open up a uh, uh, dispensary. But that'll be few and far in between. The regional banks, the national banks, they're not going to touch it until it's federally legalized. And even then, it's going to be years before they get into it in any kind of major way. It's not, it's not going to be as swish as flipped. So the, the passage of the SAFE Act <clears throat> is, I, I, I see very little effect, a negative effect in IAPR. People assume it's going to be a much larger and broader sweeping regulation and all the banks are going to come rushing in and start lending to these guys. It's not going to happen. I've spoken to bankers. I run a syndicate that invests in cannabis entrepreneurs. And let me tell you something. Banks aren't touching this anytime soon. 
So, I think that it has a huge runway in front of it. I think it has such a head start on people. They have right, they're, they're writing in right of first refusal to a lot of their leases now. So some of these guys open up three, four, five grow facilities or another dispensary, whatever they're doing. They, they got right of first refusal over whoever comes in behind them. <clears throat> so I'm not overly concerned about it. And they're providing a service, right? They're, they're, they're providing banking to these guys. So what they're doing is they're buying the warehouse space and they're giving these entrepreneurs <clears throat> or these businesses money to fix them up, to make a grow facility out of them, and then operate and they're signing a 15-year lease. Now, you know, I think there's a, I think part of the assumption is that uh, these grow houses are, you know, four hippies with a greenhouse in a field growing cannabis. And it, it, let me tell you something, it could not be farther from the truth. I'm sure some of the operations are pretty basic, but I was actually in one Friday morning, which is part of the reason I didn't get to the podcast Friday. And the only thing I can tell you is that I felt like I was going into a silicone chip production factory. You had to put on the, the bodysuit with the hood, and you had to go through the, it's called a, a wind shower. You go in, you get locked in a room, they blow everything off of you, and then you walk out. One person at a time goes through. And then you walked, we walked into the grow room, and it was like nothing I've ever seen. Every plant was labeled. Every plant had a number on it. <clears throat> so that when they harvest the plants, they can measure the yield measure the oils they get out of it, and know if they want to use that plant as a mother plant for the next generation based on yields and size and things like that. It, it's a scientific operation. The guy that run, the guy that was the head grower, he had a master's in plant biology and a minor in some sort of science about plants and agriculture that I, I couldn't understand. But the guy's a scientist. And the CEO Found, started a biotech company and took it public in London Exchange for 20 years, retired, and then got into cannabis. These aren't, these aren't hippies in the field. These are legit guys running a legit business. And it, it, it reminded me of the, the, the machinery and the, the, how they had things set up. It reminded me of a biotech, silicone wafer biotech, silico, sorry, a silicone chip factory. And the economics in the private sector right now are, are you can grow for about $350 a pound. You wholesale it to other dispensaries at about $3,500 a pound. You re, it retails in your own dispensary <clears throat> at about $7,200 a pound. And if, you're, um, if your grow facility is set up right, and these guys were, and you can produce edibles and things like that, you're talking fourteen to twenty thousand dollars a pound on a three hundred and fifty dollar cost. It's a license to print money. So, you know, when these other growers want to come in, they're paying huge premiums to get into these markets. That's what happened, and that's what it still is happening. 
So the public cannabis companies are going to suffer for a little while. I think IAPR's results are starting to separate it from that pack. And people are realizing this is how to play cannabis right now. Because they have no competition. I'm sure there are some small, <clears throat> non-public reads. I think just one out in California um, that does this on a much smaller scale. You know, I think they do it for dispensaries. You know, they're not investing $20, 30000000 million in grow operations. Uh, but there's no competition right now, and I don't see any in the near future. Anyone with a grow facility knows who they are. They know where to get financing. They know where to get funding from them. It's it's a good move. So I, I'm, you know, I, I do I know do I know if the stock bottom? No, but you know I don't know how you you're looking at the yield. You look. I mean, even put cannabis aside. If you're a yield investor, you want to be invested in it, right? If you're if you want dividends, you you got to look at this and like this thing's paying. 4% forward yield, growing at 100% a year, I, I just want the dividends. Because your dividend's going to go up by 50% or maybe 100% next year. So income investors are going to start getting involved with this. Put aside the stock price and all that stuff. It's a very real scenario two or three years from now, we're making 15% annually just on the dividend, maybe 20, given their growth weight. And there's a lot of, you know, you know don't, don't go to sleep at night thinking that's what's going to happen because, you know, there's a lot of legislation that could change, who knows, but, you know, next year's going to be better than this year, and this year's been amazing. The, the number of properties they've acquired this year alone a significant number of them aren't even paying rent yet. They're in the process of being fixed up and open, and there's always a grace period to pay rent. And they still have money in the bank to invest for more properties. You know, people are worried about the SAFE Act, but the SAFE Act could be a blessing. They could maybe start getting some debt financing instead of having to issue more shares. You know, if a local credit union, who, if you're a local credit union and you're going to start loaning to cannabis companies now because the SAFE Act passed, who do you want to loan to? You want to loan to Fred and Tom who want to open a grow facility or do you want to, uh, you want to uh, loan to a billion dollar company who's been doing this all over the place and has 40 properties they've done and has a history of success doing this? Who's going to get that loan? Who's going to get better terms? Of course, we are. So the SAFE Act could end up being, people are so scared of it, it could be a blessing. It could open up alternate avenues of financing for them for their properties, other than issuing shares. And that would be good for us. So, um, I, I, I love the investment. I love being in the space. I think that it's got a long way to go. And, um, you know, Stocks go up, stocks go down. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Uh, I don't see, um, you know, I don't see any reason to get too worried right now. I got another question on the uh, private cannabis stuff, but I'm just going to do a separate podcast on that. Um, um, just because uh, 
uh, yeah, I'll just do a separate one. That way, that way, those those who are interested can listen. Those who aren't, you know, aren't, don't have to listen to it on the regular podcast. So, and I'll I'll probably do it. Um, I'm traveling for work till Tuesday night, so I'll, maybe I'll do it Wednesday or Thursday next week. Um, and I'll put it alone in the blog that I'm going to do it, and you know, that way you guys can pick and choose if you want to listen to it or not. Um, so, so I think not too many questions this week. So. Let me just do a real, one more, I always want to check one more time just in case I miss one because I do it. Um, yeah, I think that's it. All right, everybody. I hope uh, I hope everyone has a uh, safe and happy weekend. And I hope uh, all your football teams, uh, except Cleveland and New England, win this weekend. I hope you both lose. And Bills are playing Cleveland, by the way. Uh, so <clears throat> I'll be back next week. I'll be in touch. Have a great night, everybody.